Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. Grateful to bring you what we call the American view of law and government. That is the view of our founders, a truly American understanding of what government is all about. Three things, very simple. First of all, there is a creator God. Secondly, that creator God and him alone is the one who has given us rights, their God-given rights. And thirdly, therefore, the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and defend those God-given rights. Well, I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, Senior Instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And with me, my wonderful collaborators on this fine Friday morning, Phil Duffy, our Constitutional Instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom as he defends the God-given right to keep and bear arms. Now, when we talk about rights, the most fundamental important right of all is your right to life. And that's first in the list there in the Declaration of Independence, because obviously, if you don't have your right to life protected, then your life is taken from you unjustly. You cannot enjoy any of your other God-given rights. Obviously, you can't enjoy your right to ownership of property or your, your right to liberty or any of the other rights that uh, are given to us by our creator God. So the right to life is right up front as the most important right to be protected. In fact, that's what the purpose of human civil government is, to protect our God-given right to life. And so that's why our discussion this morning, uh, looking at the Supreme Court cases, we're calling the decent dozen. I actually got a baker's dozen here, 13, but we're rounding out that series this morning with the jo Dobbs v. v. Jackson Women's Health Organization of 2022. This last year was a monumental accomplishment for those who have been fighting this battle uh, since uh, Roe v. Wade, a near 50-year battle uh, to uh, restore the right to life for those who were the most innocent and the most vulnerable in our society. That is, of course, those who are still in their mother's womb. So it's um, unconscionable to understand that in our land, the most dangerous place to live, the most dangerous address is not in the slums of Philadelphia or or New York, or Baltimore, anywhere else in the country where there's a lot of violence and a lot of killing going on on a daily basis, or Chicago, murder capital of the country. No, the most dangerous address in America is the womb of a child's mother, because the womb of a child's mother, more murders take place per day than all the other murders put together from all the other addresses in all the other cities, because the right to life since Roe v. Wade has been trampled upon. So, Dobbs v. Jackson. Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on this case, Dobbs v. Jackson. Cornell's Legal Information Institute relates the facts behind this case. The case involved Mississippi's Gestational Act, uh, Age Act passed in 2018, which prohibited abortions after 15 weeks except for medical emergencies or severe fetal abnormalities. The act also applied penalties such as license suspension to abortion providers. Consequently, Jackson Women's Health Organization filed suit in a federal district court and challenged the constitutionality of the Gestational Age Act. Thomas Dobbs, the petitioner, was a Mississippi state health officer. Dobbs filed a petition for certiorari, which was granted. The Supreme Court granted writ to address whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. So these are the arguments made by Mississippi Department of Health. Mississippi, through Dobbs, argued that the Constitution does not provide a right to abortion. 
and as such, states can freely ban abortions if it is rashly re, uh, related to legitimate government interests. Mississippi leaned on the text of the Tenth Amendment that denies states powers like making treaties, but does not directly deny the power to restrict re abortion. Additionally, Mississippi argued that liberty, as written in the 14th Amendment, only implicates fundamental rights that are deeply rooted in U.S. history and tradition. Mississippi further argued that abortion is not a fundamental right here, since many states at the time of the 14th Amendment's ratification had bans on abortions. Additionally, Mississippi contended that the viability line prevented a state from protecting its interests and was too arbitrary or subjective. Legitimate government interest is actually a definable term, but to pursue it requires that one go down a rabbit hole of useless legal jargon leading to an arbitrary judgment by a court. The Constitution of 1787, on the other hand, defines legitimate government interest to be those powers that have been granted specifically by the states to the federal government. During Washington's first administration, Alexander Hamilton convinced Washington that the Constitution granted implied powers, particularly the implied power to create a central bank. An argument can be made for implied powers in certain cases. For example, the Constitution requires that a census be conducted every 10 years, but does not specify how that will be conducted, nor who will accept the cost of taking the census. That need not be specified in a Constitution. Likewise, uh, there is no provision in the Constitution for an Air Force, only an Army and a Navy. The Navy has incorporated aeronautic technology since it became available. The Army did as well, until the conclusion of World War II. In 1947, Congress separated a, uh, created a separate Air Force and uh, shut down the Army Air Corps. That organizational change was implied in Article 1, Section 8, authorizing Congress to raise an army and a navy. There are limits to the concept of implied powers, however. There is nothing in the Constitution that even suggests that a central banking system, such as the Federal Reserve, be created. Likewise, allowing the federal government to expand infinitely as long as it exclaims general welfare is well outside of the boundaries of implied powers. Invocation of the Tenth Amendment by Mississippi, in this case, seems consistent with the original intent of this amendment. Likewise, the argument that the 14th Amendment was implemented at a time when many states had bans on abortion is a compelling argument. Finally, the argument that a viability line prevented a state from protecting its interests uh, has some merit. Age-limit viability lines, such as 21 years or 18 years, are clearly arbitrary, although it may be necessary to rely on them for full citizen, uh, uh, citizenship definition purposes. First, there is the question of what viability means in determining where life begins. And beyond that, who is to determine when a human being has attained viability? The whole concept of viability in defining life is highly subjective. We can't argue that just because a human has survived the birth process, the newborn is viable. To the contrary, a fully healthy one-month-old infant would not be viable if abandoned. It seems none of these arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization were based upon the idea that life begins at conception. Although we explore the implications of DNA and observe the prenatal infant in the womb with ultrasound, that becomes apparent. So there were arguments made by uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization as well. 
Jackson Women's Health Organization contended in opposition that abortion is grounded in the 14th Amendment. It asserted that physical uh, autonomy and body integrity are essential elements of liberty protected by the Due Process Clause. For example, contraception is included in the word liberty. Women's Health also argued that abortion, or the right of a person to have possession of their own body, is important in the common law tradition. Furthermore, Women's Health pointed out that federal courts have uniformly applied the viability line. On the other hand, the National Review website contends the earliest English legal authorities, Bracton writing around 50, uh, 1256, and the anonymous author of uh, Fleet in 1290, held that abortion was homicide, the killing of a human being. A few centuries later, the most respected English legal authorities, who influenced the American founders and American law, Sir Edward Coke, who lived between 1552 and 1634, and Sir William Blackstone, who lived between 1723 and 1780, affirmed the criminality of abortion from the time that medical practitioners could determine that a woman was pregnant with a living child. Wikipedia offers the following definition of fetal viability. Viability, as the word has been used in the United States constitutional law since Roe v. Wade, is the potential of the fetus to survive outside of the uterus after birth, natural or induced, when supported by up-to-date medicine. Fetal viability depends largely on the fetal organ maturity and environmental conditions. According to Webster's Encyclopedic Unabridged Dictionary of the English Language, viability of a fetus means having reached such a stage of development as to be capable of living under normal conditions outside of the uterus. Viability exists as a function of biomedical and technological capacities, which are different in different parts of the world. As a consequence, there is, at the present time, no worldwide, uniform, gestational age that defines viability. In Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court had arbitrarily established fetal viability as follows. A. For the stage prior to approximately the end of the first trimester, the abortion decision and its effectuation must be left to the medical judgment of the pregnant woman's attending physician. B. For the stage subsequently to approximately the end of the first trimester, the state, in promoting its interests in the health of the mother, may, if it chooses, regulate the abortion procedure in ways that are reasonably related to maternal health. C. For the stage subsequent to viability, the state, in promoting its interests in the potentiality of human life, may, if it chooses, regulate and even proscribe abortion, except where necessary, in appropriate medical judgment for the preservation of the life or health of the mother. Let's return to the idea that the right of a person to have possession of their own body is important in the common law tradition. The EWTN website recounts the history of the Christian Church's opposition to abortion. Abortion was not mentioned at all during the first 80 years of the early Christian Church's existence because to Jesus and the first Christians, abortion obviously fell under the broad structure, thou shalt not kill. However, by the end of the first century, the Church had declared abortion to be a serious sin. The first century uh, Didache uh, declared that you shall not kill an unborn child or murder a newborn infant. According to Wikipedia, the Didache is considered the first example of the genre of church orders. The Didache 
reveals how Jewish Christians saw themselves and how they adopted their practice for Gentile Christians. The Didache is similar in several ways to the Gospel of Matthew, perhaps because both texts originated in similar communities. The opening chapters, which also appear in other early Christian texts, are likely derived from an earlier Jewish source. Concerning support for abortion in the common law, we can trace history to determine when the common law had its beginnings. Some say that it was with Alfred the Great, the Saxon king, who laid the foundation for the common law. This is what one website has to say about King Alfred on that subject. Alfred's most important work was certainly his law code. It is uh, preceded by a long introduction. This contains translations not only of the Ten Commandments, but also of many other passages from the book of Exodus. It is followed by an excerpt from Christ's Sermon on the Mount and by a brief account of apostolic history with quotations from the apostolic book of Acts. There, Alfred stresses the jots and tittles, uh, alias the minutia of God's law and his prophets, the golden rule, and the God-inspired decision of the first general assembly of the Christian church in order to teach God's law and his prophets, as well as his gospel, also in the congregations of Christ. Others believe that the common law arose in St. Patrick's Ireland, and that Alfred the Great was influenced by Patrick. In any case, Patrick lived in the 5th century, and Alfred in the 9th. There's no evidence that either was a supporter of abortion, nor Coke and Blackstone in 17th and 18th century, respectively. So the idea that abortion has a basis in the common law is either an atrocious lie or atrocious ignorance. On the other hand, the pro-abortion argument does have some merit on a superficial basis. Jackson Women's Health Organization is correct that a person has possession of their own body according to the common law tradition. John Locke had stated in Second uh, Treatise of Government that every man has a property in his own person. Restated in 21st century terminology, Every person has a property in their own person. In the case of abortion, we can keep the men out of the question. Only females are capable of sheltering and nurturing another human being prior to birth. So ultimately, we are forced to confront the question about the nature of the fetus. Is it a senseless and useless conglomeration of cells until the miraculous moment when the fetus sees the light of day, issues that first cry and breathes the air of its of the external environment, that is an awful lot of work to be done at that mystical moment. Moment, One could have to, uh, would have to conclude that the work of creating another human being had occurred gradually over the gestation period. All science and all human logic must bow before that reality. The argument made by Jackson Women's Health Organization comes down to the question of liberty. And here is where the natural rights and common law traditions come together. Humans are free to do whatever they wish as long as they do not aggress against another human being. In violently taking the life of another human being in the fetal stage, the woman and those cooperating in the abortion act are participating in depriving another human being both of life and liberty. So how did the Supreme Court see that? Cornell Legal Information Institute website describes the majority opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Justice Alito wrote the majority opinion, joined by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, 
Kavanaugh and Barrett. The court explained that the critical question was whether the Constitution properly understood uh, confers a right to obtain an abortion. The court first stated that the Constitution makes no express references to abortion. Further, court precedent holds that a state regulation of abortion is not a sex-based classification and so is not subject to heightened scrutiny. From there, the court then established that abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. The court elaborated that the due process law protects only two types of substantive rights, rights guaranteed by the first eight amendments and rights that are deemed fundamental. As such, the court noted that the, the history of abortion in the U.S. is as a crime that at the time of the 14th Amendment was adopted, three quarters of the states had made abortion a crime at any stage of pregnancy. The court explained that this was true until Roe v. Wade, and thus liberty would not recognize abortion as a fundamental right rooted in the nature, history, or traditions of the nation. Indeed, the court stated that Roe either ignored or misstated this history. The court also explained that the people of various states may evaluate the interest between potential life and a woman who wants an abortion differently than the court. Finally, the court concluded that abortion is not part of a broader entrenched right, that justifying this premise proves too much. The court said that linking abortion to a right uh, to autonomy or to define one's concept of existence would also license fundamental rights to illicit drug use or prostitution. The idea that court precedent holds that uh, a state regulation of abortion is not a sex-based classification, and so is not subject to heightened scrutiny. It's a complicated question that was not raised in this case's dissenting opinion issued by Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. It is important to understand that the opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States, the people of various states may evaluate the interest between potential life and a woman who wants an abortion differently than the court. In other words, states are at liberty to implement abortion laws in conflict with the Supreme Court's opinion. The Supreme Court's opinion, however, found Roe v. Wade in error in attempting to assert the federal government had jurisdiction over abortion cases. While this case may be applauded by pro-life people, it did not directly address the issue of abortion as a violation of an individual's liberty, the life and liberty of the unborn. That's absolutely right, Phil. Thank you. This is a, a monumental case, I think, uh, having been part of uh, fighting the fight against abortion since uh, well, Roe v. Wade. And I was still in high school at the time, and uh, I remember debating other students about the, you know, what is that thing in a woman's womb? What is it? Is it a dog? Is it a cat? Is it a bat? What is it? No, it's a human being. And really, if we look at it carefully, the only difference between the human being outside the womb and the human being inside the womb, there's five things, five things, and, and they spell out this little anacronym that, that helps you helps you remember it. S-L-E-D, the word sled, broken down as size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency. So take size for an issue, for example. Can we murder somebody based upon the fact that they're small, you know, that, uh, that all the uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is pretty tall and other people are pretty short and you got people who are midgets. And so can we kill people because they're smaller than other people? Is that, you know, grounds for justifiable homicide? Of course, no. We would say that's size discrimination, you know, a short people get no respect kind of thing. Well, obviously, size is not a measure by which we determine the humanity of another person, uh, in this case, the person in the womb. 
The second is L, the level of development. So if somebody is less developed than someone else, does that mean that we have the right to take their life? They have no right to life because of the level of their development. So, uh, you know, obviously a toddler is just learning to walk and he's got a long way to go beyond just learning to walk and learning the other skills in life. And, you know, we say, well, obviously his level of development is severely below that of a full grown adult. And therefore, should we be able to rightly take the life of a toddler simply because, well, a toddler's level of development is much lower than that of the rest of us. Uh, no, of course, that's not a basis on which uh, someone can be deprived of their God-given right to life. So size, level of development, the next one is environment. We would never say that someone based upon their address, where they live, where they reside, can be t- have their life taken from them because they reside. So someone in the inner city would never say that that address in the slum gives us the uh, freedom to take their life and it's a justifiable homicide because they happen to live at such and such an address. No, of course not. We reject that. And so why would the address of the mother's womb be a grounds for saying that it is justifiable homicide? Size, level of development, and finally, degree of dependency. And here I think a lot of people feel like, well, you know, that that baby in the womb is completely dependent on its mother, and uh, you know it it can't uh, feed itself, and it can't do uh, it can't uh, change itself. It can't do a whole host of things that we expect you know human beings to do. That they are extremely dependent. But think of the other people in our society that are extremely dependent. Someone in a nursing home, you know. They're dependent on somebody else to make their food and clean their room and change their adult diapers, all those sorts of things. And do we say you can, you know, justifiably take their life simply because of the degree of dependency? Now, by the way, there are the evil ones in our society that are advocating for exactly that, euthanasia. It's like, well, you know, these people are useless eaters. They're taking up space on planet Earth and on and on they go. Let's eliminate them. Well, that is not the ethic that our founders held to because they clearly stated in the Declaration of Independence, one of the prime purposes for human civil government is to protect the God-given right to life. And life has been given in the womb. And obviously, our our modern uh, technological advancements enable us to see inside the womb with ultrasound, even 3D ultrasound, amazing technology, that we could see, you know, a baby sucking its thumb. We could see a baby turning over, all sorts of amazing things. We can measure the heartbeat and the rate of the heartbeat. When my uh, firstborn was uh, still in the womb, that was one of the amazing things, to listen to the heartbeat of uh, that baby girl who is my daughter. And, and it's just a wonderful thing. So size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency, SLED, is no reason why some category of human beings can be deprived of the God-given right to life. And Phil, I appreciate you bringing up the common law. And, and it's curious to me that they, they tried to argue, the, the women's health tried to argue on the basis of common law that somehow abortion was a common law right or something like that. And you're absolutely correct that, you know, this is ridiculous. Because if you look at the true history of common law, yes, indeed, it goes directly back to the Bible and St. Patrick's exposition of the Bible as it applied to uh, law and government there in Ireland. By the way, Patrick himself was not Irish, in spite of the Irish all, all thinking so. He actually wasn't even Catholic in spite of that as well. The Catholics made him a saint. He was Celtic. He was a Celtic Christian, different from uh, Roman Catholicism. But uh, Patrick, 
when he evangelized Ireland and, and led these pagan people to faith in Jesus Christ, one of the practices of these pagans was human sacrifice, including child sacrifice, not necessarily abortion inside the womb, but obviously if you're killing a baby outside the womb, uh, sacrificing a human being, you wouldn't have any problem with sacrificing a human being inside the womb either. Uh, and so this terrible practice of Ireland, of uh, human sacrifice that I, I also sadly in, engaged in cannibalism so that they would oh, literally eat the ones, the human beings that they sacrificed. This was something that as the gospel of Jesus Christ came to those Irish uh, uh, pagans and they came to faith in Christ, they recognized this is wrong and it is so wrong that we need to establish the law of Ireland that would eliminate human sacrifice and say that it is illegal to sacrifice a human being. And indeed, Patrick accomplished that. He wrote a book, Ex Loegis Mo Moesius, the, uh, the uh, Law of Liberty Out of Moses, uh, is taking God's word and basically uh, paraphrasing it and putting it on paper so that the uh, people of Ireland would have a summary of the law of God. Here's what is right. Here's what is wrong. And uh, by Patrick's work, work, by the end of his life, human sacrifice was outlawed in Ireland, and it became a crime to take the life of another human being. And this was an amazing accomplishment for this man's life and his work. In fact, it was an accomplishment that clearly outlived his life. In fact, outlived him by 1,000 years. Ireland forbid human sacrifice for 1,000 years. It was just a few years ago. They wickedly returned to human sacrifice. Abortion, again, in the womb. But uh, uh, that era of time, that 1,000 years, was an accomplishment of Patrick. And yes, Patrick did have an influence because the book he wrote, Ex Moesius, uh, The Laws of Moses, was a book that was not only copied a multitude of times in Ireland, it passed over to Scotland and copies of the book made it to England. And the tutor who trained King Alfred as a young man used Patrick's book to teach young King Alfred the law of God and the law of the land. And so, like you rightly said, he, he uh, you know, uh, King Alfred developed a, a exposition leading up to uh, the text of Patrick, but he preserved uh, that uh, as as part of what became the common law of England. So, you know, the, the big debate, I think, about abortion often wrestles with this idea that the women want to say, it's my body, it's my choice, and therefore I can do with my body what I choose to do with my body. But the problem with that is it really doesn't follow the science at all. Because the infant in her womb has an entirely different genetic makeup, a different DNA. If you compare the DNA and the DNA of the mother uh, and the DNA of the baby is not the same. It's not her body. It is a separate human being with a separate body. And yes, uh, you know, she has the right to do with her body whatever she chooses, which, by the way, is pretty curious. So many of those people, those leftists who touted that, you know, it's my body, it's my right kind of thing. Well, how did that change with the COVID in 2020, where all of a sudden, no, 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 you have no right not to get a shot, uh, that we demand that you get this shot. Um, and people tried to argue, it's my body. <laughs> and the leftists, including the feminists who support abortion, said, no, 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 you can't use that argument. That argument is illegal. You can't use that argument. And that's not, you know, what? You mean it's not my body and the government can tell me what has to be injected into my body? The government can tell me I must put on a face diaper and so on? Yeah. <laughs> There's a real problem. They they don't seem to follow through with their arguments, and they they tout to us continually follow the science. But if you follow the science regarding that infant in the womb, that is a 
human being. And the only difference between that human being inside the womb and the human being outside the womb is the size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency. And it all spells out uh, that word sled. So the Supreme Court got this decision correct. They This is a, a one of the decent dozen uh, for that reason. And they clearly and, and, and constitutionally said that the Constitution makes no express reference to abortion. Therefore, it's not in the federal jurisdiction to make a decision regarding this. And this is good. I mean, this is what ought to happen with so, so many issues that have been grabbed by the federal government and controlled by the federal government that don't belong to the federal government at all. We gave the federal government, we the people gave the federal government delegated, limited, enumerated powers. And only those powers that we enumerated in the Constitution are the powers that the federal government actually possesses. So for them in 1973 to grab this issue of when does life begin, and obviously in Roe v. Wade, they didn't answer the question. In fact, they said they didn't even know when life began and so on, and uh, they developed their own system of saying trimesters. That was never uh, before uh, used, and they developed their own theory of how to handle it. Now, all of that was the federal government overreach, grabbing an issue that belonged not to the federal government, but to the states, because the 10th Amendment to our Constitution clearly says that anything that we the people have not given to the federal government and those delegated, limited, enumerated powers. Anything else belongs to the states or to the people. So they're correct in saying this is an issue uh, that states can wrestle with and make a decision on. Of course, my argument would be that states who uh, preserve abortion and continue abortion, such as my state here in Maryland, are violating the laws of nature and nature's God. They are taking the life of innocent and the blood of those innocent that they uh, are murdering. That's going to come back to haunt them. You don't get away with breaking God's law. In fact, you can't even break God's law. You break yourself on the rock of God's law. And so our state, as well as any other state that continues the evil practice of murdering babies, is going to have a day of judgment come for them as a state. And I fear for my state of Maryland and, and the other states in the union that are continuing to murder babies. In fact, in Maryland, they're doing more murder now because people are coming in from states that have outlawed uh, abortion and, and coming in here to get their uh, their murder done. And so uh, we're, we're going to face a day of reckoning. And so I pray for repentance of our state government. And uh, at this point, they're not repentant. They're actually going worse. They're doubling down and and our uh, recently ended legislative session, they passed a bill that is designed to amend our state constitution and ensconce abortion permanently as a, a quote unquote right uh, to murder your baby in our constitution. But we're praying that that would be uh, defeated by the people. But it's a it's a pleasure to say here is one of the decent dozen, uh, the case where our Supreme Court clearly got it right. Uh, and we pray that the states would follow in that footsteps of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Well, Mike, what uh, are your thoughts on the on the Dobbs case? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization is an interesting case in a number of different ways. First, I want to say as a law student reading Roe, I was left scratching my head as to how the court came up with the proposition that the United States Constitution protected abortion. While reading and rereading, it was difficult for me to reach that result. It reminded me of a comment made by a contracts law professor whose audio lectures I listened to. And yes, I am that much of a nerd that I often listen to audio lectures by professors at different law schools. But this professor was laying out some very basic contract principles and noting how these principles are rarely raised in contractual litigation, even though they are very much relevant 
to a lot of major litigation. He specifically referenced litigation against auto manufacturers. And he said the practitioners get so wrapped up in the way things are done and always have been done that nobody raises these fundamental principles in their challenges and they dismiss them as basic first-year law school kind of stuff. He actually called it kitty stuff, even though they could serve as a legitimate basis for contractual challenge in these major cases. Now, sometimes we veer so far away from the basics and the fundamentals for no good reason that we fail to analyze challenges using these fundamentals. Similarly, when we see challenges that have strayed very far from specific enumerated powers of Congress, as you mentioned, you know, last week I was teaching a conference for lawyers and I posed a question about why a law could get struck down and the clearest answer would be that Congress does not have the authority to regulate in that manner. Yet, unfortunately, nobody got the answer correct. It brings us back to that basic idea of Pastor Whitney's colleague, Mike Peruca, that we have to stop focusing on whether we think a proposed law is a good or bad idea and shift that focus to whether Congress has the authority to enact such a law. And that concept brings me to the next principle, which I think is quite relevant to Roe. Another lecture I had listened to by a constitutional law professor said something along the lines of, you could hold the beliefs that politics should have no role in the decisions of the courts and the Supreme Court and its jurisprudence, but you would be a fool to say that politics do not have a role in Supreme Court jurisprudence. That's absolutely the truth, and I think that's how we end up with Roe. I particularly hold that belief that politics should be left out of Supreme Court's jurisprudence, but I think that's the only way you reach the conclusion that abortion is a fundamental right. In Dobbs, the court took a look at whether the 14th Amendment truly protected such a right, and in doing so, it looked at previous cases such as Tim's, which dealt with the 8th Amendment, and McDonald's, which actually dealt with the Second Amendment. In Dobbs, the court said that these decisions have held that the Due Process Clause protects two categories of substantive rights. And to quote the court, the first consists of rights guaranteed by the first eight amendments. Those amendments originally applied only to federal government, but this court has held that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment incorporates the great majority of those rights and thus makes them equally applicable to the states. The second category, which is the one in question here, compromises a select list of fundamental rights that are not mentioned anywhere in the Constitution. The court looked at the history of the right at issue and whether the right is, quote, deeply rooted in our history and tradition, and whether it is, quote, necessary for our scheme of ordered liberty. You look to whether the protection is fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty, deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. Now, the court found that in this case, it is quite the opposite. And that not only was abortion not considered fundamental to liberty, but it was actually illegal. The court said, quote, not only was there no support for such a constitutional right until shortly before Roe, but abortion had long been a crime in every single state. At common law, abortion was criminal in at least some stages of pregnancy and was regarded as unlawful and could have very serious consequences at all stages. Now, I know I'm the legal analyst, so I'm supposed to be logical and analytical here. Which is, as a side note, as a human being, for anybody who's ever uh, been related in some way to a pregnancy and ultimately lost that baby, there is no question in your mind that that is truly the life of a human being. And when you're in that position, you do anything to protect the life of that human being. And to think that 
somebody does that on purpose is just absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, because when you're doing anything to protect the life of that human being and it gets taken from you otherwise for circumstances that are beyond your control, it is absolutely crushing. Uh, you, you truly mourn a death in your family. And I know that this is the complete opposite of all the points that I've made so far that uh, we should be looking at the law and uh, we shouldn't be making decisions based on uh, what we believe the right outcome should be. But I think there's a point that everybody should really take to heart. And amen. Amen to that. So when we look at this, there was 49 years of error, you know, from 1973 to 2022, 49 years in which uh, our country went in the wrong direction. And very encouraging to me that this came out in the right direction. Of course, the battle is still in many, many of the states that uh, continue to practice uh, the murder of the unborn. But the thing that was very curious to me is the response to this, unlike other Supreme Court decisions that perhaps have not gone the way of, uh, of what constitutional conservatives would want to see, the response to this was outraged violence. And I guess maybe I shouldn't be surprised because these are the people who support murder. So when they support murder, why wouldn't they support violence along with it? You know, churches being vandalized, uh, uh, various uh, pro-life pregnancy centers trying to help women uh, in their pregnancy being vandalized. And on and on it goes. And it's like, very interesting that these who advocate for the murder of the unborn tip their hand very clearly that they're they're proponents of violence, which tells me something about where that whole thing comes from in, in terms of the, the civilization of our country, that we beca have become in that 49 years a far more barbaric country than ever before, that those who disagree with one another on, on very important issues such as this, they just don't disagree on paper or on the, uh, you know, cybersphere of whatever, you know, social platform where they disagree by expressing violence and hatred. The fact that Jane Fonda was on the, the view, this cackling gaggle of, uh, I don't know what you would describe them, of leftist women. But anyway, the, the, the view, she was on there and she was asked something, well, what else can we do now that, you know, Dobbs has overturned uh, Roe? And, and she said, I've thought of murder. And everybody said, oh, you're joking, of course. But if you watch Jane Fonda's re reaction to that, uh, to her saying murder, she rolls her eyes and so on. She indicates that, no, 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 this is not a joke. This is very serious. In other words, someone who supports abortion as Jane Fonda does also, she would say, supports the murder of those who disagree with her view that she has a right to murder babies in, in the womb. And so we just you get, a, you get a picture of the kind of barbarity uh, we've descended to, into as, as a country. And I think part of it is the result of, of Roe v. Wade that, uh, you know, if you teach a whole generation of students that uh, they have a right or their parents, let's put it this way, their parents had the right to murder them. Every child born from 1973 on knew their parent could have murdered them and usually uh, murdered them at the expense of the taxpayers. So the government's going to ding everybody in the community to gather money to murder them. What do you think those children think about the value of human life? Maybe that's why they burst into schoolhouses and shoot the place up and kill a bunch of fellow students. After all, oh, murder's fine. And that's what uh, I believe the legacy of Roe v. Wade is, the kind of violence and murder we have not only in the hearts of people in our country, but obviously in, in their hands. What do you think? They have the right to murder the kids. And just a few short years later, they don't have the right to stop the kid from taking puberty blockers with irreversible side effects for the rest of their life. What, what a swing that is, right? Yeah. 
gone into barbarism. You know, there, there's a couple of things that come to mind with this. I could under, I understand that there are people who are against outlawing abortion. I understand that that is the case, that there are people who take that position. What I can't wrap my head around are people uh, like you mentioned who don't understand people who take the, the position that abortion is murder and that it's wrong. Because at the end of the day, we're talking about something that people who take this position believe you are taking the life of another human being, uh, you know, an innocent, defenseless baby. And it, it would seem to me that any logical human being could agree with the premise that it's wrong to kill a baby, right? Yeah. <laughs> that that, that <laughs> should at least be it. And perhaps we'll have the debate as to where life begins and whether it's actually a baby and everything like that. I get it. For me personally, I, I think it becomes very clear that the people who make that claim uh, on the pro-abortion side can't really tell you where life does begin, in their opinion. They can't tell you when it does become a baby. And that's a problem because if you're shooting a gun in the woods and you see something that you think might be a baby, but you're not quite sure, you don't just shoot at it and say, well, it might be a baby. Who's to say? (laughs) 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 I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. You you err on the side of caution so you don't kill a baby. And it would seem you would take the same approach with something like this, which also goes to the, the whole viability standard that we've been talking about for so many years. I will say this. I did not predict that the Supreme Court would come down this way on this particular case or that it would reach a decision like this anytime soon. If I had to bet any kind of money on this, I would not have bet that we we're going to see this kind of a decision at this point in time. We did. What I did think was more likely is that we'd start to see the scientific advancements in the medical field bring us to a point where there was no distinction between viable and non-viable because of how soon you could continue to make a a life viable based on the the medical advances. So uh, I thought that were going to be more likely that we'd see something like that take place uh, because of what they're able to do today. But even with those those medical advances and things of that nature, that also brings up another point about abortion and the whole my body, my choice thing. There are couples who the, the wife has a tough time carrying a baby to term and they end up having a surrogate come in. So if the surrogate decides six months in, I don't feel like doing this anymore. This ain't for me. I'm putting on too much weight or whatever it may be. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of being nauseous and ended up killing that baby would it be her body her choice under those circumstances is that it (laughs) i mean it doesn't quite make sense when you put it like that does it no absolutely right good illustration you know so far we've we've emphasized the the negative position the uh the violence that is being supported and promoted by the the political left but i think this is a good time to also acknowledge the mistakes that have been made in the leadership the pro-life leadership on the right uh, particularly when we we acknowledge that principle that we we've got to focus not only on what is what we uh, uh, feel is just but we we must focus on what is the law um if if we can go back to the 2008 uh, presidential election. I think there is just a, an extremely good example of this this kind of of uh, anomaly, if you will, that occurs. Um, this this was a campaign in which I believe he had about eight uh, candidates from the 
the uh, Republican side running for the presidency of the United States in 2008 election. And Ron Paul was one of those. Uh, Rudy Giuliani got a, a lot of initial uh, recognition. And of course, Rudy Giuliani was pro-choice. And the pro-life leadership went berserk. Now, I believe it was in November that they convened and uh, they uh, came to the conclusion that Giuliani had to be put out of the running, uh, no matter what. And the only way to do that was not to rely upon the, the judgments of the, the uh, pro-life voters, but to take it into their own hands to designate who should run on the pro-life platform, if you will. And so they selected a fellow by the name of Fred Thompson, an ex-actor, Tennessee senator, uh, temporarily, and, uh, and not too much else. I mean, he really didn't have too much uh, going for him. And that was in, in um, I believe, November of 2007 that they made that, that recommendation. Um, now, they could have at that time identified all of the candidates who had various levels of pro-life credentials, if you will. Ron Paul probably had the best credentials of all. I believe he was, he certainly was uh, a, uh, an obstetrician who had, had delivered something like 4,000 babies. But he had also written two books on the subject of, of uh, uh, pro-life books, if you will, on the subject of banning abortion as a necessity for ensuring liberty. And, uh, but he was, he was bypassed. The people had to, to vote for, for Fred Thompson. You know, they didn't, um, uh, there were no alternatives as far as the leadership was concerned. Well, I believe that at the pro-life uh, uh, march in January, late January of 2008, there were all kinds of professional uh, Ron Paul uh, signs out. The, the Ron Paul people were very active the, uh, and active amongst the young, by the way. Um, I observed one uh, Fred Thompson supporter on a bicycle with a cardboard sign that obviously he had made up, and he was driving up and down the mall, as I recall, trying to get attention against this this wave of Ron Paul support. Well, it wasn't two days later, I think, that that uh, Fred Thompson faced reality, and uh, I got in touch with the pro-life leadership people. I said, now, open it up, if you will. Uh, identify everybody who has pro-life credentials. And let the people choose. That is the purpose of, of uh, a plebiscite, after all. Oh, no, no, no. We know uh, what we're doing. They selected another candidate who, within 45 days, pulled out of the contest. They ultimately came down to John McCain. Now, John McCain, as a pro-life candidate, was not very acceptable because his credentials were very, very wishy-washy. He was pro-life in certain things, but uh, uh, he wasn't pro-life in... in uh, other things like stem cells uh, research, which uh, the pro-life people had opposed. Well, they finally, through a process of elimination, came down to only John McCain. Now, they should have been warned because John McCain was the recommended uh, candidate on the Republican side by the New York Times of all people. Now, we know where the New York Times uh, leans in this situation. So really what they wanted was for the the Republicans to come up with the weakest possible candidate to oppose their candidate, who at that time was uh, Barack Obama. So uh, we know the outcome. And the, the sad thing about it was that 
Ron Paul not only knew more about uh, healthcare economics than anybody else, he knew more about the abortion issue than anybody else. He also knew more about uh, finance, government finance and banking. He had written several books on that subject. So he knew all of the campaign uh, arguments inside out and would have been a formidable candidate. Even if he had lost, he would have made a better impression than John McCain, who looked like, well, on the one side, he was just another another uh, uh, Democrat, a Republican, Demo- I guess they would call him, somebody who tries to bridge the gap. But he was also, the, uh, in the minds of many, the... the uh, uh, director of the uh, um, uh, the uh, pro war group in the United States, and in 2008, people were just turned off to the pro war of George W. Bush years. And so, what happened as a result of the the leadership was that Ron Paul had gotten into trouble with him as a result of the fact that he had opposed uh, a statute. Uh, he had uh, opposed legislation coming out of the Congress that would have made abortion uh, illegal. And what he what he said was, that is not the role of the federal government. There's nothing in the Constitution that gives those powers. And if we if we start to do that kind of thing, you know, we're building a, a problem for ourselves in the future. We must remain a constitutional people. They didn't understand that. But now when you get back to Dobbs, versus Jackson's women, uh, uh, Jackson women's uh, health, what you realize is that this was the case that, that Ron Paul was making. This was an acknowledgement that Ron Paul was ultimately right. And so we lost all of that, that opportunity to present a reasonable opposition to the left. And we, and we had subsequent weak Republican uh, candidates after that. So, you know, stick to the principles, remain with the law. That's right. And the principles are, are critically important. And that's uh, now that the battle for the right to life for the children, the babies in the womb is turned to the states, the states need to take up the, that same argument and uh, argue strongly. Now, there's a lot of illustrations of uh, positive things that have happened in many, many states now that have outlawed abortion at any stage. And other states have restricted abortion, heartbeat bills and things of, of that nature. Uh, but we still see that the the battle goes forward because some of the courts are refusing to allow things like the heartbeat bill that uh, uh, I believe it was Texas and Ohio, and they're, they're putting a stay on that. So, well, you know, well, we, we can't decide that uh, this baby's alive even though it has a heartbeat, so whether we can kill the baby or not. <laughs> so the battle is not over, and that's one of the messages I think we need to understand with Dobbs. In spite of the victory, there's still a lot of uh, mopping up to do, and part of it really has to do, I believe, with the failure of the Church of Jesus Christ to properly teach people about the nature of what God did when he created mankind at the beginning. You know, in the beginning, God is the one who created. He created male and female, which is much disputed by the left today. And he created each and every baby in the womb. Uh, the law of God is very clear from the moment of conception at that very moment, according to God's law, that is a human being whose life is to be uh, given the protections of all human beings as best we possibly can. And there's obviously cases where a natural miscarriage takes place, but the biblical law is very clear that if a woman somehow is engaged in a fight, a fist fight or whatever, and somehow there's an injury that happens to that baby in the womb, 
that injury, once the baby is born, is to be adjudicated. Or if the baby dies, uh, this is a serious matter that uh, is going to be treated as uh, an assault. It may not have been an assault with an intent to murder, which abortion clearly is an assault with an intent to murder, but uh, you know, an accidental manslaughter or second degree, whatever it might be determined. But it's very clear in the law of God, and this is why St. Patrick understood this, and King Alfred the Great understood this, and all of English history up until our day understood this clearly. It's only as we have left off that uh, founder's view of law and government, that the law of nature and the law of nature is God given to us in God's law, God's word. That's the standard by which we need to measure whether a law is just or unjust. When we look at what's happening in the larger culture as well, with the uh, issue of uh, transgender that, that's now on, on the front burner for many of us, uh, the issue really, again, comes back to what is the standard by which we measure right and wrong? And uh, without that standard, without an agreement upon that standard, we will continue to have uh, violence in the in the classrooms. Uh, we think of the transgender woman who, uh, oddly, they won't they won't publish the manifesto. Now, I wonder why they won't allow us to see the manifesto. What was in her mind and her heart that she hated Christians so much that she set out to murder and ultimately murdered three students? and three faculty there at that Christian school in, in Nashville, Tennessee. What was the, why won't they publish that? Because I guess it might make the transgender movement look violent. It might make it look like they hate life and they want to kill other people who disagree with them. Uh, I don't have any other idea why they would, would restrict that from us right now. Pastor, did you think that, I mentioned that I didn't think this kind of decision overturning Roe would, would come out I don't know if maybe in our lifetime, but certainly not right now. Did you think we were going to see something like this at this time period? No, uh, you're right. I did not. And that was a, a wonderful surprise coming from the Supreme Court as it did. I had expected that it might happen at the grassroots level because indeed murder is murder. And so every murder could be prosecuted at the level of uh, you know, the county. The sheriff could arrest the murderer, the abortionist, and uh, He'd be put on trial, and no matter what the judge would determine in that case, if the judge says he's innocent, no, it's not murder, well, that abortionist would find it very hard to conduct, continue to conduct his murder industry because that's, that, that could be done. Any sheriff in America could, could do that because the sheriff is a chief law enforcement officer in his county, and murder on the books of every county in, in our country, still murder still is a crime and uh, still is a capital crime that can be adjudicated. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and uh, we are blessed to bring this show to you. We encourage you to check out Mike Jeremita's show just before ours, 7 uh, a.m. on Friday mornings, and join us again next Friday morning uh, at 8 a.m. as we dive into the last of our Dirty Dozen. That is the last case that we're going to look at of the Dirty Dozen from the Supreme Court of the United States. <laughs>